This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Andrew Bridgen, it is wonderful to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome. Andrew Bridgen, of course, you can find him at a Bridgen on Twitter, and he has served as Member of Parliament for Northwest Leicestershire since 2010, re-elected 2015, 2017, and 2019 with a whopping 62% off the vote, one of the few MPs with anywhere near that. Um, obviously, thrown out of the Conservative Party, uh, the whip removed, and then that was in April 2023 for raising concerns on the COVID jab. And uh, Andrew now represents the Reclaim Party in Parliament as an MP. Um, Andrew, may I can ask you first, what got you into politics? You entered Parliament 2010. Uh, what made you think it would be a good idea to get into politics? Um, frustration, Peter. Um I'd been running a business for 22 years, uh, which had started up with £1,000. So I'd been, I'd been MD and chairman of the company, and we built it up to um, a £25 million turnover company employing 300 people by 2006. Um, I'd, given, I'd, I'd, I'd been interested in politics. I joined the Conservatives in 1983 at Nottingham University. And I'd been chairman of the Institute of Directors and on the council of the IOD in Pall Mall um, through working on, on, during the Blair years uh, with the East Midlands Regional Assembly as a business member. Obviously, I'd met a lot of, um, of ministers and I can't say that I was impressed. Um, well, it was pretty clear they were going to bankrupt us. Um, so... Um, a group of friends, most they were all really sort of small and medium-sized business people and their wives. We used to meet at a pub locally, and uh, every Friday night it was it was sort of Groundhog Day. So they always moaned about the state of the country. I'd given a reasonable donation uh, to the Conservative Party in two thousand and five, and I think we had a half a percent swing to the Conservatives. So worked out at that rate we're never going to get rid of tony blair um and so they moaned every every friday night and it, it eventually it got to me but i mean by that time i was running a business that was making about three million pounds a year across the group i got a good management team and no debt whatsoever and um one pint of Marston's pedigree on a Friday night too many. And uh, I said to this group of collected individuals, <clears throat> that's it then. It's no good relying on anybody else. There's only us. So uh, in northwest Leicestershire, we're supposed to be a, a rock-solid Labour seat. The council, I don't think, had ever been Conservative-controlled properly. I think they may have had control for about three months once out of 40 years uh, after a by-election. Uh, so I said, well, you all stand for the council, the district council. I'll stand for MP. Uh, we'll take over and uh, and we'll get it sorted. And to a man and a woman, every single one of them agreed. 
Um, and so I put most of the money up for the, I put the money up for the campaign and I got the nomination. Nobody really wanted to be the MP for Northwest Leicester. Well, the candidate for Northwest Leicester, because no one, the Conservatives told me we can't win Northwest Leicestershire, 83rd target seat. They also said they weren't giving me any money, but I said, that's fine. I've got my own money. And my factory was in the, in the, uh, so I actually did have a payroll vote. So 300 people plus their families in the constituency. And uh, the district council elections came round first in 2007. And I was already selected as the parliamentary candidate. I ran those elections and put the money up. And uh, it was the first time the Conservatives had put a full slate up in a in the seat. And uh, they said I was running them too thin. But uh, I, I always thought, in the base, if you didn't put a candidate up, it was uh, at an election. It's very difficult to see how how uh, you know, they're going to vote for somebody, aren't they? Yep. So um, we put a full slate of candidates up and took Labour down to five councils out of 38 in one night. Wow. The biggest swing in the country in the district council elections in 2007. We took control of the council, obviously. Um, and I had the second biggest swing in against Labour in 2010. So I turned a rock solid four and a half thousand Labour majority with a much loved Labour MP who sadly died um into uh, seven and a half thousand conservatives at one so i think a 12 and a half percent swing mm. um the seat's my home and uh you know i'm very comfortable in northwest leicestershire and uh we moved it to in 2015 it went up to eleven thousand two hundred majority and Despite Theresa May's best efforts in 17 with her manifesto, which was appalling, uh, I moved up to 13,300 majority. And then in 19, well, I, I led the Leave campaign in uh, the referendum for the East Midlands. And I'd, uh, I'd told my seat that if they didn't back me, uh, I would have to resign as their MP because we didn't agree on the big issues. But I'm, to be honest, Peter, I was fairly sure they would. Um, so the East Midlands voted uh, 59-41 to leave, and uh, my own seat voted uh, 61-39. And I'm actually the MP who persuaded Boris Johnson to back leave. Mm. Um, he, he was no way that he was a natural Brexiteer. And also, if you if you look back on the, on on YouTube, you'll find that on the eve of the referendum, Boris Johnson came to my seat and we went around Ashby de la Zouche. <clears throat> That's when I told him we were going to win, and you should have seen his face when I told him we were going to win. I don't think that that wasn't actually part of the plan, Peter. And he he tried to talk me out of it. He said, "No, no, it's it, it's going to be close, but we're not going to win." I said, "No, no, we're going to win tomorrow." No, it's going to be close. I said, "Well, maybe." I said, "But." Certainly not round here. Not round here. It's not going to be close. You know the bit we're running. Yeah. So uh, and then in in nineteen on the get Brexit done uh, election, which now seems so much happened since nineteen. It, it it feels like a very long time ago, more than four years away. And uh, I got a twenty thousand four hundred majority. It was sixty two point eight percent of the vote. Yeah. And the BBC, I had no sleep that night. The next morning, the BBC interviewed me. And they said, Mr. Bridgen, you must be delighted. This is your fourth election victory. Each time you've increased your vote, you've increased your majority, your percentage of the vote. 
you must be delighted. I said, no, it's, it's terrible, actually. They said, why is it terrible? I said, well, I've, you know, it's nine years since I was first elected as the MP. I've delivered the highest economic growth in the country. We've taken the poorest constituency in Leicestershire and made it the richest, the only part of Leicestershire with above average UK salaries and wages. Uh, we've got the happiest place to live in the, in the Midlands now, Colville, the mo which was the most deprived town in Leicestershire. I said, and one in three of the electorate are still not voting for me. I'm going to have to work much, much harder. D tell me about that whole Brexit battle. I mean, my time was UKIP and UKIP was easy because 100% of kippers were on board. Uh, the Conservative Party have always had that tension and division over Europe. Uh, what was that like actually in the Conservative Party pushing something that wasn't necessarily what the Conservatives wanted? Well, it wasn't what the establishment wanted. All the established parties were backing Remain. And yeah. um, well, I think it was interesting uh, that the Conservative Party was like a very civilised internal war. Uh, and there were probably only a, a quarter to 30% of Conservative MPs who were for leave. So still the majority were, were uh, remain or indifferent. And, and some of them maintaining indifference, which I mean, I, you know, I don't know what you're into politics for. If a big question like whether we should remain or leave the European Union, uh, they say, oh, I don't want to get involved in this. I'll just sit down and see what my people say. I mean, that's not exactly leadership, is it? I mean, I think that should be pretty much automatic deselection if you can't make your mind up on that, on that sort of issue. Um, and what what comes back to mind is that the Conservative Party. We used to when I was when I was in the Conservative Party before they threw me out. Um, well, firstly, I'll tell you this: that Conservatives have never have never been encouraged in the Conservative Party. They're only ever tolerated. Mm. Um, the Conservative Party, Parliamentary Party, had something called an away day every two years, and they pay for them in, in advance to get a good deal. So despite the fact that there was this internal schism over the referendum that was coming, the party had paid for an away weekend in Oxfordshire at this basically hotel that's like a bomb villain's hideout <laughs> with an underground, with an underground uh, lecture theatre. It was this very weird place. And, um, and because we paid for it, we, we were told we'd all got to go there. And, we, and this is only sort of three months before the referendum. And we had a, a very civilised weekend of talking about policy. But no one mentioned the EU and no one mentioned the referendum over the whole two and a half days and the dinner. But I do remember that Craig Oliver sat with me at the final dinner. He sat next to me on my table at the final dinner. And I told him, I said, have you got yourself another job lined up for when you lose? And he said to me, he said, that's fine. He said, if we win by one vote, that's it settled and that's that's it done. I said, well, to be honest, I'll take the, I'll take that on as long as it cuts both ways. You know, if we win by one, and and I knew we were going to win, Peter, because I'd been around and around the East Midlands, and I could tell we were definitely going to win. But it's about driving the vote up because it wasn't just winning by a seat; it, all the votes were cumulative, so every vote counted. Yeah. Um, and what I'd sussed out is in my seat and in the east midlands is that people who didn't normally vote were going to come out and vote yeah. 
they weren't those people who didn't normally engage with politics. They weren't coming out to they weren't coming out to vote for the status quo. They're voting for change. Mm. So I concentrated my campaigning efforts the last six weeks and a lot of campaigning. And also I was running a load of field operatives who are 90 percent of it were they were UKIP. Um, the remain campaign had nobody on the ground willing to deliver leaflets hardly at all for them. We, we were we were destroying them on the on the on the ground battle. Obviously, the, the air campaign, we could only be responsive because they got all the media. They got all the established parties and we were we were the insurgents. So that was more of a struggle. But on the ground, we were doing very, very well. And what I'd sussed out was that people were going to come out and vote who didn't normally vote. And every time I saw the polls, um, I was not disappointed because I knew that we were probably we'd probably got five or six percent better than the polls were saying, because these people who were going to come out and vote and they told me they were and I believe they were. Um, they're not engaged in politics. They're not on YouGov's polling panel. Uh, and when Comres or somebody else rang them up and they said, oh, well, I'm going to vote to leave the European Union, they'd say, well, did you vote in the last general election? No. Did you vote in the local? No. Did you vote in the one before? No. Have you ever voted? No. And they'd put them down as zero chance of voting. Well, I knew as long as we got those people out, it was all going to come as a bit of a surprise to uh, the Remain campaign. And I, so in, in Northwest Leicestershire, and we counted our votes, so I know it's why I know exactly because what, what the vote was in Northwest Leicestershire, which is coterminous with my seat of Northwest Leicestershire mm. until the next boundary changes. Um, I think it was a sort of 70, 75% turnout to get me in in 2010, important election. And then ever since then, as my majority had gone up, the turnout had gone down and it dropped to sort of 68.5% or something in 19. But I mean, it was a stonking massive majority. Mm. Um, and obviously the, the referendum, um, I was very encouraged when it was nearly 80%. And I'd spent all my time in northwest Leicester and across the East Midlands in my villages, I mean, it's a general election, they turn out 85% anyway. I'm not going to squeeze much more out of those people. You know, it's very hard to squeeze. They're, they're on, the, on the second, third pressings of the pips. So I went to all the areas that normally turn out 50, 55, 60% because there was plenty of low-hanging fruit. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was that turnout in northwest Leicestershire and across the East Midlands, some people who didn't normally vote, and that's why we won. And that's why the polling was so wrong. And that's what people like David Cameron, who'd, uh, who'd come to my seat in 2008 when he was leader of the opposition. And he, he really upset me, Peter. So I'm, 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 I'm a candidate. Mm. We've just taken the council for, with a, a, the biggest swing in the country for the first time in, in living memory. And Cameron told me in front of constituents that the, my seat was a dump and it, it had never be conservative wow. and they weren't giving me any money and i said well, i don't need your money and to be honest david if that's your view never ever come to my constituency again and i will win it yeah and uh and, and to be honest david Cameron is a man of his word he never came uh he never came um so that's fine and i think i think now my majority is bigger than whitney so i mean what what a dump the cotswold must be <laughs> i mean <laughs> Northwest Leicestershire, and uh, and we've we've gentrified, we've gentrified. Yeah. Um, so people used to be 
say, you know, Colville was a very poor place and, it, you know, he didn't have a chance. And now it's Colville and Proud. Hmm. Uh, in fact, I'm speaking to you from Colville today. Uh, I want to get on to the COVID discussion situation, but I just you, you talked at the beginning about having a business and I guess part of your reason for getting into politics was you wanted the government to butt out. You want local businesses to be able to get on, uh, to have not to have restrictions on them actually doing well, making money, employing people. Uh, what kind of other kind of interests or passions? Uh, well, I'd, I'd, well I'd, actually got, I'd actually cut my teeth in politics when I was chair of the Institute of Directors, which they didn't like particularly because they were, they were fairly pro-EU is that I, I got involved as a businessman in the uh, business for Sterling and the No campaign to keep the pound, so 25 years ago. And mm. um, thank goodness we, we didn't join the euro. Otherwise, I mean, it would be much, much more difficult to extract ourselves. Uh, yes. And Simon Wolfson, the, uh, the chairman of Next, we used to meet at Enderby in his boardroom and, uh, and plot uh, business for Sterling and the No campaign, so uh, I suppose yeah, that that's that that's where I, uh, I I got it. I got involved, and and um, a chap called Chris Eaton Harris, who's gone on to great things apparently, uh, he was an MEP, and uh, and his father had a, a fruit and vegetable wholesale pitch in Covent Garden Market, and since I was into washing, packing, and distributing vegetables mostly potatoes nothing sexy um chris was one of my customers i used to buy from mark potatoes from mark spencer wow, wow. Uh, and um and philip dunn as well they're farmers so we we had the whole supply chain between us you know what i mean but, um, but, I, but I made most of the money <laughs> which is just as well because then well, that's just the as parliament as well. just as well so uh, so yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to put something back, and uh, yeah, that's that's where we ended up. Um, obviously, being a Brexiteer, there was backlash uh, in the media. There was probably some pushback within the party itself. Um, but I guess none of that even prepared you for the backlash whenever you addressed COVID tyranny. Is that a fair assessment? Well, no, no, the. The two years under Theresa May were purgatory, quite honestly. Um, I mean, I was a Spartan, so I voted three times against Theresa May's deal, which, you know, it wasn't, you know, some colleagues were conflicted and there was, you know, Steve Baker crying his eyes out. But, I mean, there was nothing to cry about because I've already voted against it twice. I haven't got any better and once you've come to the conclusion, which was the correct conclusion, that Theresa May's deal was constitutionally and democratically worse than being in the European Union, I mean, at least if you're in the European Union, you have a chance of leaving, whereas Theresa May's deal, we would be in vassalage forever and there's no way of leaving. Well, I mean, that's not a deal, not in my name. And, and that, that vote on the third time Theresa May's deal came up before the Commons, I was pretty convinced that there were probably going to be 28 Conservatives in the uh, in the no lobby. The rest of Parliament would vote yes, and that we would have been slung out of the Conservative Party within a few days. That was that was where I thought we were. Thank goodness. I mean, 
we always criticize Jeremy Corbyn, but he is a man of principle and he is secretly um, a Brexiteer, really, I think. And uh, and he marched the Labour Party in behind us. And the rest, as they say, is history. But I mean, a, a politically savvy Keir Starmer would never would have, would have taken Theresa May's deal and consigned us to EU vassalage. Mm. So thank goodness it was Jeremy Corbyn. But he did win the Conservatives the uh, the 19 election. That wasn't down to Boris. It was pure fear of, of Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. No, it was, you don't want Corbyn. Uh, 100% I remember that well. Well, no, I actually had two, during that 19 election, I can remember when I was going around the doorsteps, two members, two paid up locally members of the Labour Party came to me and said, I'll be voting Conservative. I can't vote for Jeremy Corbyn. Wow. And they actually told me they were paid up members of the Labour Party locally. I mean, if you, I mean, that is your core, ultra core vote. They weren't even voting for him. Hmm. Wow. Um, on, on to the COVID, I've never seen anything in, uh, I mean, I've loved politics uh, forever uh, with Northern Ireland parties, the DUP, and we've had Ian Paisley and Sammy Wilson on before, and then Conservatives, then over to UK, but nothing has divided people like what we've had in the last three years with the, the COVID tyranny. Um, but you spoke a step, it wasn't just on the restrictions that we had, that's civil liberty. Um, but you also saw what was happening with harms and went on that. Um, kind of tell us about that, kind of how you worked that out, because that was a big step and that was an unacceptable step. I think um, there's an element of destiny about all of this, Peter. Um, when I was 18, and I'm the only member of my family that's uh, that's been to university, I had a full grant because my parents weren't, weren't very... Uh, and wealthy were poor um so about two and a half percent of people went to university when i went in the 80s and i went to nottingham locally but i studied biological sciences with biochemistry specializing in genetics virology and behavior oh, I didn't oh dear <laughs> and i don't know why it just there were things i found quite fascinating so i've tried to keep my knowledge up so I mean, in, in February, when, when when we'd had the 19 election and then we had a sort of six weeks period and then we had then we had COVID and everything changed. Yeah. Well, in the February, I was sent and I looked through the, um, the scientific papers for the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, its effectiveness against uh, coronaviruses. And it was compelling. They were scientific papers. And because I've got my degree a very long time ago in those subjects. I mean, I can read them and I can understand the papers. And I sent the papers to Mark Spencer, Chief Whip, and said, this, the government need to look at this urgently. This could be, could be very useful. Uh, and also sent them to Jeremy Hunt, who was at the time uh, chair of the Health Select Committee. And I didn't get anything back from Spencer. Uh, and I also told Spencer, I said, you realise that I've got qualifications in all the areas that will be useful. If you want some help in the number 10, the someone who can actually read the papers and understand it and put it across politically, I'll be quite happy to help. They never, Mr. never asked me to help. Uh, and I rang up Jeremy Hunt a week later, and, and this shocked me, Peter, and it will shock your, your listeners. So I, I rang him, Hunt up and said, Jeremy, I, I, I sent you these papers. Have you, have you looked at them? 
And he said, Andrew, he said, don't send me scientific papers. He said, I don't understand them. <laughs> and I said, but generally, you're, you're, chairman of, you're chairman of the Health Select Committee, and you, you were health secretary for seven years. I said, what, you don't, you don't understand scientific papers? And what, you have no access to anyone who does understand them who could actually explain them to you? And he put the phone down. And that was that. And so my suspicion, so I hadn't got a great deal of confidence. I did support the first lockdown because I don't think anybody knew, well, somebody knew what was going on. It certainly wasn't me. Uh, yeah, was it three weeks to flatten the curve? Yes. <laughs> or three. Anyway, so, and I, I was, from then on, things just didn't seem to stack up. The masks, I couldn't see, I couldn't see the sense behind the masks, uh, I mean, those paper masks, they are to stop saliva from the, the doctors and nurses going onto the patient's wounds and to stop blood and other bodily fluids squirting into the medic's mouths, which they don't really like. They don't like that. <laughs> they're there for. So uh, not, not to stop viruses and, you know, the gaps around the edges. And, you know, and um, I was briefly in the, in the military. And, uh, you know, if you had a full nuclear biological chemical suit, you've only got an 80% chance of getting keeping your virus out. Mm. Well, I mean, that's not what these paper masks are. And to be honest, I hate it. I hate it putting them on anyway. They, they're horrible. Um, so I was um, that, that, and then the, the continuous lockdowns and Northwest Leicester was chucked in with Leicester. And, uh, and so we were, we were locked down as much as anywhere in the country. It was completely un, unprecedented and unwarranted i also really objected to the schools being closed yeah. and i objected i mean they were making the children wear masks and even some schools were making the children wear masks when it wasn't mandated and none of this seemed right and and, and there are some speaking to some scientists who were speaking out about their concerns and the fact that they were silenced and they said all oh, the science is all settled i mean we've heard that one before several times i'm sure we'll hear it again but, I mean, science is never settled. It's a bit like politics. There's always another view. And if you can't defend your position, then there's something wrong. Um, you know, every scientific thesis is open to challenge or should be able to challenge. And most of them, I mean, half of everything that doctors are taught in medical school within 10 years will be proved to be completely wrong. That's a fact. I mean, that's just a fact. Uh, so... You know, the only constant is is the evolution of science and new theories to supersede old ones and saying that you know, we're not having any debate about this and cancelling eminent scientists. Then my concerns grew and grew and grew. But I I didn't want to believe the worst of the government. I actually am double vaccinated. They, they'll call me an anti-vaxxer, which is which is difficult when uh, when I'm vaxxed. Um, I'm, I'm more the sort of concerned vaxxed. And uh, and I had, a, I had two, two shots of AstraZeneca. I wish I'd had none. And I had a bad reaction after the, the second uh, uh, jab, um, which really, really hurt me. Mm. So um, I'd bitten my tongue. I'd also uncovered a lot of corruption around the PPE. Yeah. Uh, my whistleblower was sacked. We uncovered £860 million worth of PCR tests that had disappeared from stock at uh, Coonan Nagel with the distributor. We, we traced some of the unique barcodes and they turned up in Berlin. They've been resold. Mm. So nearly a billion pounds. And, and my, my whistleblower could only go back 12 months on his computer. <clears throat> and he was only in one of the three 
channels. He was in the channel to do with bulk, so it was only sort of prisons, schools, hospitals, things like that. But £860 million worth of PCR tests had gone missing, the taxpayer had paid for. We took it to the government and the civil service. My whistleblower's computer was switched off on the day and he was sacked within seven days, no investigation. Um, I was pretty annoyed. Mm. Um, and, I mean, the corruption of the Boris Johnson regime was the first one I'd... <clears throat> and he was the, he'd been the first prime minister I'd actually voted for and I was, I was feeling very betrayed. So I hadn't voted for David Cameron, obviously. I voted for David Davis. Yeah. And Cameron got in, and I, I didn't vote for Theresa May. She got in, and so, and then Boris um, turned out to be as crooked as all the rest of them. So that wasn't good. <clears throat> and then, well, my pretty view on the vaccines uh, and the mRNA technology, the messenger ribonucleic acid technology. Um, I was working behind the scenes. Uh, obviously, Matt Hancock had to go, and we had uh, Sajid Javid became health secretary. Mm. <clears throat> well, there are <clears throat> there are about five Conservative MPs who are qualified doctors. Okay. Well, Matt Hancock, not a good man, but he had said in the House of Commons that these vaccines were for adults; they were for children. Mm. So, no one under eighteen was going to have them. <clears throat> I know that every one of the doctors, qualified doctors, went to see Sajid Javid and told him not to, not to use the uh, experimental vaccines on under 18s, and he listened to all of them and then approved it. It's interesting that these two, these two health secretaries are both leaving the Commons at the next election, isn't it? Mm. I wonder where they'll. I just wonder where they'll land. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I, I suspect, Peter, they'll be earning a lot more money than MPs get paid. Right. Let's just put it that way. Uh, they, they, and, they, uh, they will. And, and then, then when the MHRA came out in November last year yeah. and, and wanted to extend the experimental vaccines to babies down to six months of age, um, and I'll declare an interest, I've got a five-year-old, and I thought, nah, I've got to speak out. And I, I knew there'd be a huge backlash from the party mm. politically. And I knew the vested interests that were involved in it. Uh, but I also knew that it was probably going to cost me my position in the Conservative Party because they were so committed. Yeah. Um, but that I could win. That I, I'm pretty sure I, I thought, well, there's no point doing it for nothing. Mm. You've got to win. Uh, and I, I was pretty sure that I, I could put the science over that there were you know, no healthy child of that age had died anywhere in the world of, uh, of COVID-19. So there was minimal, minuscule risk from the virus, but there was a risk from the vaccine. And I thought even the most pro-vaccine person I could persuade, you know, that the, the, since the manufacturers still had uh, immunity from prosecution, that there had to be a risk. Uh, but there was no risk to those children. I thought I could get that message across and we could actually do some good. And so on the, I'd spoken out in a Westminster Hall debate in, I think it was October. And then in, on November the 13th, I secured a, uh, an adjournment debate and, and blew the lid off the childhood vaccines, mm. uh, 
vaccination with the experimental mRNA. And that night, my life changed. Um, I was basically immediately cancelled by the mainstream media. Um, and from that moment onwards, I had hundreds of thousands of emails from around the world from people who were telling me about the vaccine harms and, and the vaccine deaths that uh, they were seeing. Um, and and that was it, really. So after that, um, although the government will say that uh, I'm a conspiracy theorist, um, anti-science, anti-vax, and, and, and all the people who, who call me anti-science and everything, I mean, they, they haven't got any science degrees between them. Um, and the fact is that the government, our government was never able to approve um, those vaccines for healthy under fives, whereas all the other countries around the world did. So despite the fact that uh, they said that I was talking absolute rubbish, they never bought the policy and every other country did. And um, then we got round to sort of January and uh, the infamous tweet, which was actually, which was actually, I mean, yes, so I, I retweeted um, I actually didn't do it, but I mean, it was retweeted on my Twitter, a, a tweet from uh, Dr. Josh Gutschko, Getzko of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And it's fair to say that Mr. Gutschko is a Jewish gentleman, mm. uh, that the uh, he'd been told by a top cardiologist that the uh, the rollout of the vaccine was the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. And... Uh, the party seized on that, the Conservative Party seized on that to say I was an anti-Semite and uh, and suspended me immediately from the party. Um, I had a, a meeting at that time with a Conservative Party grandee who'd clearly been briefed by the party. We had an hour together in his office. <clears throat> and I told him all of my concerns around the vaccine harms, the medazlam and morphine, the creation of the first wave of deaths by moving people out of care homes and then putting them onto the uh, the death pathway, putting them down with with treating them with respiratory suppressants to give them the symptoms of COVID nineteen, which were, appeared on their on their death certificate, and they were pretty much all cremated uh, very shortly afterwards. So there was no autopsies, and we had an hour of that. I also knew that the that the person I was meeting with, because I'd done my research and I'd got plenty of informers, he knew full well all of my concerns because he'd been told told them i also know that uh, his sister had had to go into hospital after the second pfizer jab with chest pains but i didn't tell him any of this and at the end of the meeting uh, this grandee turned around to me obviously with the party line i've been suspended and um, and said that there is no currently no political appetite for your views on the vaccine andrew uh, there may well be in 20 years time and you're probably going to be proved right but in the meantime you need to bear in mind you're taking on the most powerful vested interest in the world with all the personal risk for you which that will entail and at that point i said well the meeting's over then isn't it i'm not don't ever threaten me hmm. um and uh, i don't like being threatened by public school boys it, you know as a comprehensive school boy <laughs> if they had been at my school they'd have spent most of their time with their head down the toilet as i can tell you it was a very comprehensive education uh, so, uh, so we basically called it a day at that, and and then they just fast tracked the uh, investigation and found me guilty and 
permanently expelled me from the Conservative Party, which is interesting because in their investigation, what they didn't discover is I never I never put the tweet out myself anyway. I've never, ever had the codes to my own Twitter. Hmm. It was actually posted by my association chairman who remains in the Conservative Party. Yeah, can I ask you about... <laughs> I need to ask you about the conversations with colleagues and obviously not breaking conference any of that, but I working with Lord Pearson, I'm always amazed people come to him after a debate and says, well done. I could never say that, but well done. You said that. Did you have any kind of similar? Yes. Conversation with colleagues? Over, over, well, it's, it's, it's coming up to a year since I first yeah. spoke out. So yeah, I've probably had 20, I've probably had 30 backbenchers, have come up to me and said, you're definitely onto something with these vaccine harms, keep going. But that's a million miles from standing in the chamber and saying anything. I had a, I've had senior members of the Conservative Party have come to me and said that they're going to speak out. Hmm. Uh, I've, I've had, had a, um, um, a very senior MP came to me before summer recess and said, He'd been approached by a constituent representing 1,100 vaccine-harmed people and he'd have to speak out, but he hasn't. And I had a very senior minister who came to me and said that they're... I mean, this is all in private, in in, mm. in Parliament, no witnesses, so, I mean, they can deny it if they want to, but you have my word, it's the truth. Mm. And come to me and said, you do realise that my sister's just taken the Moderna boost from now she's paralysed from the neck down. And I said, well, that's 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 terrible news, but clearly you're going to have to speak out now, aren't you? And uh, they said, no, well, she doesn't want any publicity, and they, they think they're going to get her to walk again. I said, well, you don't have to name names. I mean, you know, you've got to speak out, you know. And uh, the minister said, I'm not speaking out, and walked off. Wow. And I don't know what to go. I mean, we're supposed to speak without fear or favour. You know, I, I think the job of an MP is to... Um, Certainly, I see the job as being to represent the people, mm. starting with my people in northwest Leicestershire, against the government and the establishment. And now what we seem to have is a lot of MPs who represent the government and the establishment against the people. And that's not that's 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 an inversion of the of the job of, of a member of parliament. Um, can, can I, I, wanna... I they, they said they said to me, you know, uh, why are you willing to die on the hill of vaccine harms you know of an issue and i said well because that's the hill you're killing my people mm, no complete i i want to add two things to finish uh one you're in the reclaim party because that seemed to be the only option of course you could do as an independent that doesn't really happen in the uk and um, but also you're you're continually asking the government questions one of the latest questions is did the mhra inform the minister the pfizer covid19 vaccine had been switched um Tell us about Reclaim, and I'm assuming you're yet to receive an answer to that government question. Uh, well, Reclaim are a political party. They didn't have any MPs, but they're well-funded, and they've got some lovely premises, and they've got great people, and they're also aligned with something called the Bad Law Project. So I have access to lawyers and solicitors, and uh, so I'm taking Matt Hancock to court for defamation, mm-hmm. and uh, we have a very strong case. <laughs> uh, I'm probably going to take the Conservative Party to court for uh, the way they handled my dismissal from the party, which is unbelievable. Um, we are putting, I've put, I'm on, I'm on my fifth subject access request to the Cabinet Office. I mean, uh, Peter, I've put, I've, I've put in 
for all the information they're holding on me. And and, and even when I and over over four, this is the fifth one going in now. I keep cutting down the number of keywords and compressing the time. And every time they come back and I mean, they must have a, a library on me. Uh, they haven't got a black book. They've got a whole library on me. Um, and every time they come back and say, it's too much work. I mean, the last one was about 10 keywords. And I said, it's only from t- 1st of January, 2017. I'll publish all the papers one day and uh, it'll be fascinating. But goodness knows what they're, what they're hiding. They're certainly not willing to release any, any documentation. So I think we're going to have a, a, a massive, massive, massive bust up with uh, the government over that. And, and if they're doing it to me, it won't be just me, will it? There'll be... Um, yeah, I mean, if there's if there is any mitigation of my colleagues, and I'm not to give them any any mitigation at all for their inactivity when so many of them, I mean, I mean, what you've got to understand, Peter, is people say to me, I, I said there was a lovely female Conservative MP who will remain nameless, but she was elected in nineteen, and she came up to me a few months ago and said, Andrew, I'm really worried about you. You know, you you speak in the chamber on your own. Mm. You you have all your meals on your own. You sit on your own table in the tea room and the dining room. No one's no one talks to you. You seem really isolated. I, you know, I'm really worried about you. I said, well, it's very touching. I said, but you've got to remember, there's four thousand real people working Parliament. Yeah, the cooks, the cleaners, the waiters, the security guards, the police. I said, and they all come to me, and eighty percent of those agree with me. Mm. So I'm not really isolated at all, am I? I said, actually you're isolated you just don't realize it um so it's not been that bad uh, in parliament as far as as the pfizer data it was again uh, dr josh butchko sent me some from the hebrew university sent me some evidence and he's not a scientist he's he's a, he's a criminologist but he's a specialist in fraud and he went through the pfizer papers and discovered how they'd switched the vaccines. There were two batches in the initial batch, one that we basically made a Rolls-Royce vaccine up, which they gave to 22,000 individuals, and they had 22,000 in the placebo group who, who got a the saline shot. Um, and that's what they got approval for with the MHRA and every other regulator around the world. But that wasn't the vaccine that was, the Pfizer vaccine that was rolled out. Mm. And the, the smoking gun for the switch of the vaccines is the fact that the MHRA changed the protocols on day two of the mass rollout of the vaccination in the UK and said that everyone had got to stay at the vaccine centre for 15 minutes after day two um, because of the risk of anaphylactic shock. And you only get anaphylaxis. Uh, if there's endotoxins in the vaccines and you only get endotoxins in the vaccines if they're cultured up in bacteria such as Escherichia coli and the MHRA hadn't expected anaphylaxis because that is not how the vaccine that that was given approval for was manufactured. It wasn't manufactured in in bacteria with all the contaminants that that, that would go with it. Now, you can't, to get approval for a drug, you have to use the same mechanism of of, of, um, of production you can't you can't change anything because then you've got a different drug with different side effects mm. so basically the what my allegation is supported by 44 pages of evidence supplied to me by a doctor of criminology from the hebrew university of jerusalem which the government will not 
answer or even acknowledge is that the vaccine that was rolled out in the UK and around the world was effectively completely untested. Mm. And it also explains why the, I mean, that the harms from the Pfizer trials yeah. of the very best vaccine they could make in, in a very small, it's basically a, a bespoke vaccine yeah. that they made for 22,000 doses. Um, I mean, that was horrific enough and that should never have had approval, but it was nothing like the harm profile we've seen in actuality through the VAERS system and the, the yellow card system. And the fact that the vaccine is a different vaccine basically explains that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. If they were doing that with, with, with Pfizer, I mean, I, you know, I have no doubt that Moderna are the same. And of course, I had the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was actually that bad. It was just quietly withdrawn, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's interesting that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is the AstraZeneca vaccine is not uh, a messenger RNA. It's a DNA strand in an adenovirus vector. Um, so it's different technology to the the Pfizer and the Moderna. It's um, because obviously the DNA then will code for the messenger RNA. And so it's one step further back. It's interesting also that the I asked for an urgent question in Parliament a few months ago because the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was withdrawn in America, and I saw the the uh, FDA, uh, the Federal Drugs Agency guidelines, and it said, stop, basically stop injecting the Johnson & Johnson and all stocks are to be destroyed. Wow. And the Johnson & Johnson, that was also a DNA strand, not a messenger RNA strand, and also in a, an adenovirus vector to get it into the, into the cell mm. so it's interesting that basically both the, the, the vaccines experimental vaccines were using the dna adenovirus vector method they were both withdrawn and destroyed mm. but it is interesting that uh, india are still producing effectively astrazeneca under license uh, they call it covishield in uh, in india and of course they didn't they didn't stop the australian version of, of the astrazeneca vaccine until only a couple of months ago, so there's going to be a big kickoff there as well. So, so that's that's it. There's, I sent it to the Attorney General because the, the, one of the questions I did ask was, did the MHRA tell the minister that they'd switch the vaccines? Uh, in which case, if they didn't, then the MHRA are guilty yeah. of a, a, potentially a crime, which is I think it's a two-year prison sentence, an unlimited fine. But if they did tell the minister, then how could the minister go out and say they're safe, effective and tested when when they knew that they weren't? Mm. I can understand why the prime minister doesn't want to come back to me. There isn't. It's, it's, I'm afraid I, the letter I sent him was a bit of a do you still beat your wife question. Yeah, there wasn't a good there isn't a good answer because either I'm going to nail the MHRA or I'm going to nail the ministers. And it's also interesting, I think, that. You know, the, so many health ministers are deciding to not stand at the next general election. Mm. No, hundred percent. And uh, Andrew, I've I've watched your many speeches in the comments and and Father's written questions. And I think for our UK viewers and listeners uh, who are very frustrated UK politics, I think as long as there remains someone like you speaking this truth, then there is hope. So thank you for what you do, and thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm sure we'll speak again in the future. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.